everyone. Welcome back to Leadership, where Adrielle Parker and I talk about the social responsibility of business and how leaders can, you know, um, stop themselves from stepping in it. <laughs> Adrielle, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I love that intro. Um, how are you doing today? <laughs> it's fine. Uh, first of Women's History Month, uh, March 1st, which is great. Yeah, I, I wanted to say congrats, but that felt like a weird thing to <laughs> I congratulate mean, you for. I don't know. Like, I'm at the intersectionality of being black and a woman, so I just left Black History back. Month and rolled right back onto. To yeah, so I'm 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 happy with that. It's good times, good times. Uh, Great time to be a black woman. Love it. <laughs> right. uh, gotten some great feedback on the pod so far. Right. Yeah. Like I've gotten um, people love the title. Obviously, um, yes. it's funny that like I feel like I've gotten the most positive praise about the title on LinkedIn of all yeah. places. I feel like anyone, anything, anyone doing something even somewhat irreverent on LinkedIn, people are like, "Oh, thank God!" Like, because it's just again can be so dry. But it I'm can. gonna, I'm not gonna spend the intro shit talking business publications because I definitely had someone call me out on HBR last week, and I was like, you know what? HBR has its positive. I want I want to apologize to HBR. H, there's a lot good that happens on HBR. I don't want anyone to think I don't like HBR. It's it's yes. a good publication. It is. There's just a lot. There there's a lot of content there. And we'll leave there it at is. that. There is. There's a lot a lot of um a lot of different kinds of content. But Yes. It's... I think the point is a lot of business uh content whether that's written or podcast or whatever is very mm -hmm. dry. And I mm -hmm. think you and I set out <laughs> definitely to make this as least dry as possible because we want to be entertained, if anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot, a lot happened this week. I mean, a, a couple of things, you know, we could chat about. I mean, Tesla's going back to California. Elon Musk is kind of eating crow about his, <laughs> you know, moving the company to Texas. Amazon uh, bought one medical. Um, I love I loved watching the FTC warn about bogus AI claims. I think that's something that <laughs> you and I could probably chat yeah. a lot about. But a couple of things that I wanted to see if you saw um, Meta's launching Meta Verified, which yes. is kind of their version of the Twitter blue check mark. Have you mm -hmm. have you read about this? Mm -hmm. I did. I and I I see it from a business standpoint. Of course, it's a an additional revenue stream for them. Um, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Um, the the Twitter verify is very interesting. I think I mentioned this to you. How uh, two factor authentication is now part of that paid blue check yes. on Twitter. And if you are not a verified user, I can't remember the date and I should probably go look so my account doesn't get disabled, but you are required to disable two-factor authentication if you are not verified on Twitter. So I'm curious if Meta is going to take a similar approach, if it'll be different, um, what it's actually going to mean, if anything, to see that blue check. We'll see. I'm hoping Zuck is smart enough to not do that. I mean, what? who else charges for two-factor authentication? That's like... <sighs> one of the kind of backbones of security on the internet right now that right. across so many different platforms. Nobody's charging for that. I don't know. That, that seems like a bad idea to me. Absolutely. Um, there is, oh. I will say, a built-in feature if you have an iPhone. I don't know about other devices. Can't speak to ah. those. But iPhone does have their own sort of built-in 2FA. So if you are proceeding with using Twitter or any other app and you need an added layer of security, you can enable that. There you go. There yeah. you go. Um, I don't know. The whole rollout of Twitter Blue has just been such a shit show. I mean, mm -hmm. they did you did you read that they they now are getting 
in trouble because there's members of like the Taliban that have been verified I because they're buying this. the blue check mark. No way. Yeah, they're just they're just not um, gatekeeping it. I mean, the whole point of the ver- the blue check mark was that it was someone who is a verified actual person, right? And yeah. So to have something that is a a mark of authenticity you know, for a, a terrorist group across terrorist groups across the world who can just do this. And there's no one really gatekeeping it at Twitter. It's kind of it's causing quite a mess. Right. I don't think that fi- that meta will have the same kinds of, um, you know, issues that that the same kind of rollout issues that Musk is having over at Twitter, mm-hmm. if anything, because they, you know, have a, one much more people. M- many more people, I should say, um, on it than Twitter right. does. Twitter's kind of running a bare bones operation. Mm-hmm. But also, like, <laughs> I mean, Musk is just like the gift that keeps on giving for Zuckerberg, I feel like. Like, he just, he could do something just like slightly better than Twitter, slightly more responsible than Twitter. Facebook and Instagram are looking looking pretty good right now. Absolutely. I feel like. This conversation, although slightly off topic, makes me think about, I don't know if you've been following, but um, I think I think it's at the Supreme Court level, but with SCOTUS, but they've been looking at whether or not tech companies are going to be held uh, liable for aiding and embedding terrorism. Um, and so there's a, a case right now related to the 2015 ISIS attack in, that occurred in Paris um, that killed, I think, well over 100 people and, and injured several hundred people. Um, and I think YouTube in particular was being brought into question about, you know, if if their algorithm is recommending videos from this group or from whoever it may be in these harmful videos, are they held responsible? Right. Um, and so there, you know, are plenty of arguments being made, you know, of course the, the algorithm isn't being specifically made to promote harmful content. It's just the algorithm, right. And it follows what you're already watching and determines what you might be interested in next. And so is, you know, a tech giant like YouTube, are they going to be held responsible for that? Should they be held responsible or is it just on the person who is posting that content? So, right. Yeah, really it's, we've got some really interesting stuff happening right now with all of the changes in our now digital first world. Yeah. You're stepping on my, my, article i was going to bring to to chat about today a little bit i want to talk about the supreme court more because there's been a lot of important cases going that uh especially as it relates to tech but Mm -hmm. let's circle back on that in a minute absolutely one thing i have to bring up um before we get into our deep dives have you been paying attention to what's happening in florida with um a lot (sighs) of the uh you know education related bills that governor DeSantis is trying to pass I have, I have. Um, and so, yeah, the the first one that was passed, it was signed and passed last year, I think back in April, was the Stop Woke Act. Um, and so that was sort of this first layer to prevent um, <laughs> wokeness, for lack of better words. I laugh because it's just so unreal that we're even it's talking ridiculous. about this in 2023. It's um, but it was intended to, you know, stop some of these, essentially anything relevant to diversity, equity, inclusion from being a part of the educational system. There was a um, 
a justice that I think stopped part of the the act back in November so that it does not apply or can't be enforced with higher ed. But no worries, because now we have House Bill 999, which was introduced, I believe, last week, last Tuesday, mm-hmm. um, which is, from what I've been reading, very likely to pass. And it pretty much says that Um, Any sort of universities in Florida, even if they are privately funded, cannot support anything, any programming or initiatives relevant to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, It also has this portion about it that talks about how there can't be any education that promotes uh, the history of the United States beyond it just being uh, establishing a new nation and following the constitutional rights that we have. So what we're talking about are entire departments being Mm -hmm. eliminated at the university level, African-American studies, ethnic studies, um, LGBTQ plus studies, women's histories departments, gender studies, intersectionality, all of that um, could be eliminated, which would mean people are losing their jobs. It means that there is a lack of freedom when it comes to education in Florida. Um, it means that funding, who knows what, what's going to happen to that. Universities may have to restructure their entire systems. Um, and this could have a significant impact on education nationwide, on a global scale even. And then that just trickles into our companies, our organizations, and our society as a whole. So scary right. stuff really scary stuff it, it's really scary stuff i mean it it it's gone beyond just the critical race theory quote mm-hmm. unquote as the mm-hmm. target which was always a false you know like a straw man like that wasn't ever really a thing right that that high schools and colleges were ever really teaching except for like some very specific kinds of curriculum right but now it's gone into calling out diversity equity and inclusion like it's starting to back into things that are pretty commonplace in universities and corporate, you know, America, like you said. Yeah. And so there's a there's a fear that there's going to be this bifurcation of education in red states and education in blue states. Mm-hmm. If it goes beyond education, you could start seeing, um, you know, people. <laughs> you'd, I would not put it past DeSantis to try to do the same thing in the corporate, you know, corporate structure of companies based in Florida. Like, I just... At some point, we need to go deep on how you as a business leader react to things like this going on in the political world. Because what we right. saw in Florida very recently was um, with the Florida Don't Say Gay bill mm-hmm. that Disney, based in Orlando, obviously, um, kind of messed up their response to that. And that mm-hmm. was kind of the beginning of the end for right, their CEO. Right. So there is this backyard community thing that happens when shit like this goes down in your community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what what's your response to it as a business leader who has people of color you know who are who are devastated by something like this right right um anyway we're not gonna go deep on that today but <laughs> yes we could i mean we could spend an entire month talking about that because it is it, there's just so much going on right now that is that is very disheartening and scary Absolutely. We should circle back to that one. I've been having that very conversation with a number of my clients. Um, So yes, let's please revisit. Yeah. Talk about stepping in it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Well, uh, let's talk about our deep dives for today. I've brought a, speaking of the Supreme Court, there's been a lot going on in the Supreme Court um, in this last week in terms of what they're hearing, including with uh, Biden's elimination of student loan debt, 
Right. Um, but the uh, conversations around tech, there's a few important tech cases that could have implications for things like Section 230, which if you're familiar with it, um, base basically in a nutshell kind of protects free speech on the Internet, but it really protects companies from liability for that speech. We can we're going to talk more about that. But what I really want to dig in on is the justices themselves, especially Elena Kagan, acknowledge we are not tech experts and we right. are meant to weigh in on this thing that could honestly reshape the entire internet mm -hmm. so it reminded me of uh conversations happening in congress when you bring uh tech leaders in front of these senators who are in their 60s and 70s and you're expecting them to have sophisticated conversations about how this technology works and a lot of them a lot of them will acknowledge it but some of them just pretend to know how it works and don't right. don't actually and so there's this interesting gap between those with the knowledge of how everything on tech works, not everything, but you know what I mean, the, the, the applicable technology. Right. And those who are meant to govern it. And I want to have a conversation about how we should think about that, because I think the same um, dynamic plays out in corporate America or in, in bigger companies where you've mm -hmm. got leaders who are trying to make decisions about technology that don't really understand what's, what's supposed to happen or, or what the technology is capable of right it's not necessarily a generational divide it's a knowledge divide and i want to i want to talk about how we think about that both from governance of our country and democracy mm -hmm. and not breaking democracy but also you know on a smaller scale yeah um, what'd you bring today um today i wanted to um talk a bit about um <laughs> the sort of the conflation between ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance, and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there was an article that came out recently, and someone said that someone insisted actually that um, DEI should be shifted into ESG, and that we should focus on ESG instead because DEI, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, is antiquated and you know we're still stuck on this old affirmative action equal employment definition of diversity um, which is why we're not moving forward is roughly what they said and i completely disagree they are very different areas and i wanted to talk to you about it because i know you are very well versed in the esg space um and for me i come to this with dei and i think it's really important for people to understand the differences, but also why they are um, very much married together at the same time and should both be uh, priorities when we're talking about uh, corporate social responsibility. I feel like it's like alphabet soup. Alphabet soup, 100%. ESG, DEI. Exactly how we refer to it internally yeah. at 18 Coffees. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, you know, you don't really have to worry about DEI because if Ron DeSantis has his way, we won't be <laughs> talking mean... about it anyway. So this might might even be a moot point. It's, yeah, right. yeah. DEI versus ESG gauntlet. Love it. Yes. Let's do it. Let's go. All right, yeah, let's do the let's do the DEI versus ESG gauntlet first. I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts about this. I have given it quite a bit of thought about especially just how you structure this and resource against it in, in a company but I'm, I'm again you coming from more of a DEI perspective it's kind of your right. baby so I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think about that right well I think <laughs> I think that my honest opinion is that for a lot of people for the majority of people ESG is much more palatable and digestible 
it is much harder for people to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, knowing that it stems from affirmative action, which was a result of the civil rights era and really focused on creating equality from a racial hierarchy standpoint. That was the initial sort of approach for DEI very early on. That's how we came about with the civil rights era. That's why the civil rights era has influenced so many other social identities to pursue things, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, et cetera, right? And yeah, so almost more focused on the diversity part first. Yes. Right? Like yes. Mandating specific quotas, for example. Exactly. And so I think there are a lot of people that are still sort of stuck on that and haven't expanded their understanding of diversity or don't perceive diversity to mean anything beyond race or ethnicity. In some cases, some people also will factor in gender. But beyond that a lot of folks don't have that that understanding or definition of diversity to mean all of these other parts of our social identity, our abilities, our socioeconomic status, our political beliefs, our religious background, the list goes on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is easier for people to talk about things that they are essentially further removed from, like the environment, global warming. We we know it's happening. Um, it just snowed here in New York, and this is the first snow we had all winter, And it's pretty much melted. Global warming is absolutely happening. Like, (laughs) no question. But it's it's not a factor in, you know, it should be, but it's not something that's pressing in my everyday life. It's, It's happening around me, but it's not something I really have to think about. In contrast... When I'm, we're talking about DEI and I have to think about my identity, that's something that's very personal to me. It's something that is affecting my work day in and day out. And it's something that a lot of people struggle to have conversations around or fruitful conversations around. And a lot of people would rather just be like, I don't want to touch this DEI thing. But if you bring up ESG, it's like, oh, yeah, I want to help the environment and make sure labor rights are good and like that we're, you know, using sustainable materials. Such an easier conversation for people. And the harm with that, if if we decide to marry the two together or just focus on ESG and not DEI, is that we lose a lot of that focus that we need to be putting in the DEI space on equity and inclusion within the workplace, which also impacts how, you know, externally, how clients, partners, customers, et cetera, are interacting with a business. So you really do need to focus on both of those pieces. And we know that if an organization is focusing on ESG and really cares about the environment and they're creating sustainable processes and products or whatever else, they're more likely to bring in diverse groups of people who also care about those things and want to Mm. work for an organization that cares about those things. So again, two different areas of corporate social responsibility with very different goals, neither of which should be erased or taken away. That's uh, just my two cents. But what do I know? I would say, what do I know? <laughs> I mean, you know a lot. That's what we're I talking. do. <laughs> you know a lot. I mean, this is a fascinating conversation to me because yeah. we've talked about it a lot in terms of the relationship between ESG. We should give a little bit of history of where ESG came from, because mm-hmm. to your point about the alphabet soup, I mean, it's kind of gotten mixed in with triple bottom line and mm-hmm. co- conscious capitalism and all of these different versions of corporate social responsibility. CSR, right. there you go. There's another uh, alphabet soup for you. Yes. And how they relate together is so messy and so complicated and often mm-hmm. so subjective depending on the type of company that you are talking to, right? And their yes. industry and all of that. But ESG really came about pretty strongly in the last few years 
from the financial sector of Mm -hmm. all places as this reporting metric around the um, social responsibility of business. And it's interesting because the motivations behind it in terms of having some accountability for what you're investing in to be more socially responsible, I think is the exact right motivation, but the application of it isn't always exactly right. There's been a lot of criticism of ESG index funds, for example, for how Mm -hmm. they define things like social responsibility or environmental responsibility. Um, Famously, you had Tesla kicked off an ESG index, not because its products don't make the environment better, but because of its labor practices. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot about what different weight do you give the different parts of environmental, social, and governance. I think you also got a lot of definition issues. You hinted at this a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that people focus on ESG in terms of the environmental impact because it's easier to think about and define and, and, and in many ways to measure. Yes. I mean, there's been an explosion of ways to measure net zero carbon impact. Don't get me wrong. It is not perfect. Mm-hmm. It is definitely not standardized. There's been a lot of leaning in and kind of signaling that we're going to get some um, government oversight here about how mm-hmm. you even measure things like carbon impact. And I think that would be a good thing. But I think that to your point about how you think about it, like it is it is this thing that's easy to wrap your head around and to yeah. say, like, we're either moving in the right direction or we're moving in the wrong direction. Whereas the S of ESG, mm-hmm. which I think you could make an argument DEI either relates to or could fall under, again, depending on the corporate structure, is a lot messier. It's yeah. a lot harder to define. Yes. It has a lot more emotional components in terms of how people think about their own biases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially corporate America is not good at measuring social impact, right? Like they haven't had to think about it for decades, like the nonprofit sector has, um, except maybe a few people in CSR who have tried to, um, you know, from a corporate philanthropy standpoint, judge the effectiveness of where they're giving their money. So I think that there is that it's, it's become this imperfect forcing function for how we think about social impact. Yeah. in a corporate space. I think it has a lot of potential, but I do think that there are some serious red flags about um, how we use it to cover up what we're doing over here as a business. Mm-hmm. You know, like in an ideal world, actually in an ideal world, DEI and ESG, I think we could argue, need to be integrated into the actual business, right? But there is this um, threat of ESG being this uh, way that we, have you ever the Texas sharpshooter fallacy where you like, you shoot a bunch of things at the wall and mm-hmm. then you draw the target and go, uh, I made it, you yeah, know, like yeah, that's, yeah. that's what ESG can become in a corporate environment because you don't want to create more, riabil- more liability and more risk by putting benchmarks and goals and telling people how bad you're doing. And you right. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not, I think your, your question about the role of DI versus ESG is one that I've been thinking about a lot because I mm-hmm. think that there is a distinct there's a distinct capability for people who work in the DEI space mm-hmm. and a distinct like we talked about last week like transformation leader role but I think the measurement of how you do that needs to be included in how you think about ESG and the external reporting of ESG right right so there is a little bit of um cart before the horse like which comes first especially resources wise which comes first Mm -hmm. and where if you have a chief diversity officer and a head of esg where do they sit on the org chart Mm -hmm. and how do they interact with each other yeah Um, i think you called out a really important thing about esg in that it 
offers a way to measure things. And people in business love to fucking measure things. <laughs> like, let's be yes. real. Especially is, Wall Street, right? Yes. Like, and and that's one of the biggest challenges that the DEI space has faced is that you cannot always put a number on a person. You just can't. You cannot. Right. You can come up with some qualitative data to kind of assess and, you know, determine how people feel about equity and inclusion. But to somehow figure out to uh, how to align people on a rating is near impossible when it comes to DEI. And what we're also right. seeing is that it also hasn't been all rainbows and sprinkles with ESG either. So there was a report from Harvard end of last year talking about ESG ratings. And there are all these agencies that are creating like different agent, uh, uh, different ratings and ways to measure ESG. But there's no uniformity. There's no cohesion. Um, That's right. They're all sort of choosing their own approaches. And um, a lot of people will use the term ESG quality. Again, there's no standard for the quality. So what are we measuring against, right? right. Um, but people love numbers. So, you know, you present this index, this quality rating, the system, and people are going to gravitate towards that to influence how they keep making money and generate revenue at the end of the day. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have attempted as a firm working with some of our ESG partners to, to come up with a maturity model for ESG mm -hmm. because one doesn't really exist. Right. To your point about there not being a lot of standardization. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of talking about ESG and there's a lot of talking about it, like you said, in relation to environmental impact uh, to the point where I annoyingly in my end, it gets kind of used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. But in 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 an ideal standpoint, let's say you're designing an org chart, where do you see these two fitting together if you are, you know, resourcing for Oof. people or budgets? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to come with this, I'm going to I'm going to press you for answers, Adriel. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Like I think there is a corporate social responsibility business vertical, and I think they both can be nested under that, no? Oh, that's interesting. You could you could make an argument to nest that under nest maybe compliance at some point under but there's like there's like a legal aspect then there's a people aspect and then mm -hmm. there's I don't know so it could go under HR it could go under uh, learning and development it, it there's so those many... make me uncomfortable it's right like there's maybe you're right that it just needs to be its own thing it does like maybe we maybe we need to stop nesting these things underneath things where they don't fit quite the same place and we need to have mm -hmm. a new kind of part of the org chart that is about social responsibility full stop. Right. It feels like there's just this fear of disrupting the sort of traditional structure of business as we know it. And so people are constantly trying to shove DEI and ESG under some other business vertical. DEI almost always is stuffed yeah. under HR. It's not an HR thing. There is overlap, but it is not designed to be an HR uh, sub right. subset, if you will, right? And same with ESG. And so I think, yeah, we're at a point where I would love to see, I haven't really seen it, but I would love to see an organization that is, and maybe you have, that has created their own vertical that just focuses on that and allows it to be one of their sort of business pillars along with legal and, uh, you know, research and development and sales and all those other things. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I, I'm, I bet there's one that exists. I mean, this is a call to our listeners. Please, if you know of someone who's thought creatively about how to design this from an org chart perspective, reach out to me or Adriel and tell us. Please. We would love to highlight that. I think it would be very interesting to dig deep into. 
Definitely. I think one of the things, one of the problems that makes it tricky is that when you're thinking about DEI and ESG, it needs to touch all of those other existing business verticals. And so, you know, I think of those as kind of like pillars and then ESG and DEI are kind of coming in crossways and like seeing how they can kind of integrate. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It reminds me a lot of how when when I was joining digital teams 10, Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, and digital was kind of a new sexy thing that not a lot of organizations did. There was the same kind of consternation about does digital belong in marketing? Does digital belong under tech or, right. or CIO? You know, like there's and and the answer to just like you said is yes, like it should impact all of these things. Like mm-hmm. we're not just talking about ways to reach new consumers or new kind of, you know, embassies online that we can create, but we are doing that. We're not just talking about systems and processes and databases but there is a tech and information component like there was that's why roles like the chief digital officer came along Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. there wasn't a place in the org chart that made exactly the right sense and to some extent i think we almost spend too much time categorizing and trying to create mental space for where these things belong it's Mm -hmm. like we're we spend too much time doing that and then we don't move. We're not moving fast enough, right? Because Shuffling we're papers. so That's what I worried. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, we're so worried about the structure in the org chart. Like that stuff matters, but yeah. we need to be moving a lot faster and we can figure it out later, right? Exactly. You need, a, you need an org that's adaptable and agile enough to be able to move fast and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and not necessarily have all those like categorization answers yet. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, that actually might be a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, um, yes. which was uh, the Supreme Court cases around Section 230 and, mm-hmm. and generally our gap in tech understanding. Mm-hmm. I, I, if you, like me, have watched some of these hearings, watched some of the clips afterwards, and both from tech leaders in front of Congress, but also lawyers in front of the Supreme Court, yes. and you've seen people like Elena Kagan wrestle with you know, some of these concepts and I appreciate Justice Kagan for just calling out the game and saying, like, we're not, this is not, like, we're not the experts here. Right. Um, because I think that it is it is tough for those of us who have worked in tech or digital or, like, some of these more advanced fields mm-hmm. to watch people who have no understanding of it try to make these super important decisions. Right. Um, we should back up, and I'll give a little bit of context for Section 230. So Section 230 was part of a law whose name I forget. Um uh, uh, we can look up later, maybe. Actually, Dave, could you look that up for us and we'll, we'll throw it in? <laughs> yes. um, but it was, it was, it's been around since 1996. So you can imagine the internet in 1996 far different than the internet right mm-hmm. now, right? Um, but it was meant to protect the platforms and then companies from user-generated speech on their platforms. User-generated speech in 1996 very different than user-generated speech in 2023 Ooh, yeah. because oh, yeah. now we have all these algorithms that govern what we see and react to. Mm-hmm. So we're not just choosing our own adventure about the content online. We're actually having these companies suggest content for us and persuade us, to be honest, in ways that we don't realize. And so that's the at the heart of the argument here is, yeah. is Section 230 in its current form still relevant when now we have these persuasion mechanisms of algorithmic generated content and algorithmic generated news feeds. And so my view, I guess, is that Section 230 is still super important for creating a free, you know, 
internet that that companies can innovate off of, but it needs to be updated. Yes. Right. Yes. And I think that's what, what where we're headed. I'm not sure it's going to be from the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court sees it more based on their reactions as like Congress's um, duty. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. just like they struck down parts of the Civil Rights Act and threw it back to Congress, they might do the same thing here. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I think we're moving in a direction where 230 probably is going to be updated. Um, Absolutely. Section 230 was part of the Communications Decency Act in 1996. Yep. What were you going to say, Adriel? Um, I was just going to say, I, I think Section 230 as it stands today is not helping us by any means, as, as we've seen with these hearings. I, I agree with you. There needs to be an update. I don't think anyone, and I mean, maybe, I don't know, I'm sure there were some people that had foresight, but the general population <laughs> did not expect the internet to be like it is today, right? And that these massive tech companies would be creating these algorithms and we would be able to, um, you know, any person, any just individual could post and almost become an overnight celebrity, could share whatever they want. I don't think any of us had that that vision, um, or very few of us did. And so I don't think Section 230 was equipped to deal with the algorithms and the way that we um, are dealing with the internet today. Um, I do think that, I think earlier you said that you think there's a knowledge gap and not necessarily a generational one. I think there is also a generational gap as well, mm. right? Because it's different if you, for lack of better words, were an internet kid. Your understanding of how the internet works is very different from a boomer. Um, and so just those small nuances of how to like navigate the interwebs uh, can affect you know your perception of things and so i think we're seeing a lot yeah. of that with the justices as they struggle through understanding some of the concepts it also begs the question of can we is it possible to start changing our justice system what would that even look like because it is so incredibly antiquated right? <laughs> it's just on so many levels and it's like we're just continuing to push forward with old systems and we continue running into these pain points. And it's clear that there needs to be some sort of overhaul to the system. Right. Well, I mean, and that's what, you know, I'm getting back to is like, there's a structural problem here, mm-hmm. to your point, mm-hmm. right? About how, how quickly we can move, how quickly not just the justice system moves, but kind of our entire government. You know what I mean? Like, the, yes. we're depending on a 200 plus year old democracy to move fast enough to deal with problems that change overnight. Like Mm -hmm. that's scary when you think about it. I mean, Um, tech companies are agile. They are pushing out updates within hours, minutes sometimes. percent. I mean, how have we not already talked about the impact of generative AI and chat GPT and what's going to come? You think that people in Congress have wrapped their head around how to protect uh, copyright or any of the the issues that are about to come out around generative AI? Of course not. But this is so there's a structural problem, both within some like bigger bureaucratic companies and also in our democracy in terms of relation to how quickly can you pivot and and figure out what needs to change based on disruption. Mm -hmm. Right. But then there's this generational divide to your point. Right. The reason why I said that it, it wasn't necessarily generational divide is because I have seen it's fascinating. I have seen older workers that I've worked with who just maintain a natural curiosity around mm-hmm. things like tech and therefore have a really great understanding about it. And younger workers who 
refuse to get online, refuse to get on social media, and Absolutely. so don't really understand how it works. And so it's not, it's like a, an indicator, but it's not the indicator necessarily of right. knowledge around tech. But if you are in a company, if you're a company leader, you look to your younger workers naturally to, lead, to like give you the knowledge that you need. I mean, giving someone a social media intern, you know, five years ago, all your biggest communication, you know, <laughs> platforms was like very commonplace, like hire yeah. someone out of college. They know how this works. Um, and so how do you think about as a leader, like keeping yourself up to date with what you know how how technology works how these platforms work where's the opportunity where's the pitfalls but also like managing an aging workforce that doesn't necessarily um you know understand where the world is going but also not being ageist about it this is right. what's really tough is like you you can't like specifically be ageist about it so how right. do you i want you to solve that for us right now Andrew. <laughs> like, how do you do how do you do that yeah to your i point mean about inclusion right like we've got to absolutely include all ages. Absolutely. So I think I think we should all be aiming to learn from other people. But with that said, I think there's an opportunity for leaders to present learning opportunities, formal learning opportunities for anyone interested to ensure that people are aligned on various topics, technology, etc. Um, I think if there were more opportunities for that, it would make things a lot easier because then we'd be speaking the same language. And that would be great to see even with SCOTUS, like get your justices up to speed before you have them come in to try to make decisions on something very important. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of blows my mind because I'm like, there are so many technology educators out here um, that we could leverage to help us level set and, you know, bring folks up to speed. And yet we choose not to. And they're spending all of this time during these hearings trying to just simply understand some of the concepts that they're trying to make decisions about, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So we need Justice Kagan to not only understand the entire legal framework of the United States, but also occasionally take a Skillshare class. Come on. Every now and then. Every now and then. <laughs> Skillshare is not a sponsor of this podcast. But if you'd like to be. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, um, we, I guess we'll solve that later. Um, that's a, I think this is, again, this is something every time I see Mark Zuckerberg have to sit in front of a Congress and say things like, Senator, we run ads. I just, a part of me dies inside. So yeah, I really hope we can get some um, at training or, you know, make it more regular to have tech ambassadors on your staff. Like mm -hmm. a few of my friends have been some really influential like tech insiders in on Capitol Hill or like interns that provide that specific knowledge to those senators yeah. or Congress people. I think we need more people like that. I think maybe we need, again, to your point, people who are clerking for justices with specific expertise in that would be great. Absolutely. Um, Technology coaches, if you will. Yeah, that'd be yes. great. I'd love to see that. Yeah. yeah. All right. One more thing for this week, Adriel. Um, you want to go first or would you like me to? I will go first because I know that your one more thing is a lot more lighthearted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep it short. Um, Scott Adams, who created the comic strip Dilbert that's been around God, for I know a where this is going. very, very long time, um, was recently on a YouTube live stream. 
during which he referred to black people as a hate group. And he said that white people should, quote unquote, just get the hell away. Um, This wasn't his first uh, problematic uh, racist incident. There have been several others prior to this, but um, immediately a number of publications started to um, drop his work from their newspapers. Um, And these are, we're talking about newspapers that have printed his comic strip for years, years and years. I remember reading them as a kid. Um, And, you know, our good friend Elon Musk decided to chime in and said that the media, these papers that are dropping um, (laughs) his work are considered racist, which I mean. I mean, if you could eye roll on a podcast, I think you'd see. My eyes would get stuck. You would see my eyes are pretty much stuck in the back of my head. Um, But it's just it's really interesting because a a number of folks I kind of I always like to see how people react to these types of things on social. And people were like, well, um, you know, cancel culture just takes everything good away. And I don't think this is an example of, of cancel culture at play. This is just media publications and leaders actually deciding to do the right thing and not be tolerant of racist bullshit. Um, That's right. It doesn't matter who you are, how long you've been, uh, you know, cartooning, if that's even a word, um, or how well known you are, you know, if you are bold enough to say something so egregious and on a public platform during a live stream, you deserve to be canceled if that's what you want to call it um and so i think a number of his income streams have been taken away and now he's like going through the whole woe is me thing but still sticking by his statements which is very interesting i mean nobody wants to be the next adidas yeah right like hold on to something that is a profit stream it's for so long that when you finally do it, it just feels like you should have done it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I think this is this is privately held companies like sticking up for the people who, in many cases, work for them and are hearing right. this shit, right? Um, and making a a decision that it is more of a liability to continue being associated with this person. This is the what I find fascinating about all the calls for of cancel culture is that this is the free market at work. Mm-hmm. This is private companies making private decisions about their um, who they work with because it is more li- of a liability to work with them than it is to continue carrying the Dilbert col- comic stream. So, right. I don't know, man. I, I feel like cancel culture is like woke in that it's just it's just a phrase that gets weaponized and it doesn't even really mean anything anymore it doesn't i mean uh, and i'm curious to see how um our friend scott's career plays out after this um just because i it made me immediately think about louis ck who recently just in january sold out msg but he was quote-unquote canceled I mean, how? How do you sell out MSG after you're quote unquote canceled? Um, Right. So, you know, there's a big difference between accountability, public accountability Mm -hmm. and call out culture, Mm -hmm. which is which is a whole other thing that we can talk about. And I have, you know, uh, mixed feelings about in terms of our relationship to the Internet and everything. But yeah. But I agree. This is a, this is a pretty clear cut case to me of of private companies making market based decisions. 
Absolutely. And I was I was I was glad to see that they made some very firm decisions to remove his work. Um, there were there wasn't hesitation from a lot of publications. Some of them were still kind of like, oh, we might cancel. But for those that were like, no, you're out. We're done with this. I, th- I think that was a, a bold move and um, something we don't see often enough from media or just leaders. Um, and yeah. so I, I hope we get to see more of that moving forward. Will it change things? I don't know. I'm sure people will still go on their racist rants and do what they do. But um, I think it's important for people to start feeling some of the consequences of those things. Um, yeah. And to understand that just because you have power and privilege doesn't mean that you are um, uh, not capable of experiencing backlash yeah. as you should in a situation yeah. like this. And economic consequences, right? Yes. Not just like public shaming kind of yes. consequences. But like, absolutely. We need, to, we need to hit people in their wallets when they do this shit. That's usually the only way people get it. Yeah. All right. Well, my one more thing, as you as you pointed out, is is much more lighthearted. So we have yes. switched uh, roles this week, <laughs> where you brought something heavier and I brought something lighter. Yes. Um, my thing is just I'm I'm really loving the show Poker Face on mm-hmm. Peacock. Have you seen it? I haven't yet. It's on my list. It's on my list. It's it, I have. I have issues with shows that come out weekly. I almost never watch them or I wait till they all come out because mm-hmm. I just hate I'm I've become such a binge watcher that I just haven't I almost <laughs> a show has to be amazing for me to want to wait and watch one episode a week these days. Yeah. But Poker Face definitely from the beginning was that for me because two two people who I really respect and, and admire are part of it, Natasha Leone yes. and Ryan Johnson, who mm-hmm. has done Glass Onion and Knives Out and is just a pretty visionary director. And it's it's fun because it's it turns the procedural kind of crime show on its head mm-hmm. where Natasha Leone is this person who, you know, can tell when anyone is lying. So she's got like a little bit of that, I don't know, mentalist kind of like okay. mysterious. Yeah, yeah. But like just a just a like a, just a little bit, you know? Okay. Um but really it, the the way it subverts the genre a little bit is that you get to see what happens like you get mm-hmm. to see the murder first and you get to know all the characters that were a part of it and you get to kind of empathize with them and then halfway through the show she comes in and solves it huh, so it's okay. it's very interesting format it's super fun shot very well very highly recommend if you're looking for looking for a new show right now I am going to check it out. It's been on my list. I didn't have any context, though. I just a couple of people were like, you'll you'll be into this. Add it to your list. I'm like, "Okay, great. Um, But to your earlier point, it drives me mad when I start watching a show. This happened to me recently. I just got into Fresh Prince. Also, I think Peacock. Yes. Yeah. And I didn't realize that the second season had started and I was like binge watching it and then got to the second episode, the second season. And that was it. So I think it's one of those weekly shows. And I was like, no, I have to wait. (laughs) The worst feeling. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, uh, it it just, I get why shows do it, right? Like they want you talking about every episode. Whereas if you binge it all in one weekend, the conversation only only happens for one weekend. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Definitely. Uh, Good times. I'm going to start with this week. Bel Air, right? Yes. 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 Bel Air. Amazing show. And it's a drama. They dramatized it fascinating it's so cool like i i was you know i thought it was going to be another reboot but 
it's not, but it also still incorporates some of the the humor and the bits from the original series um, with Will Smith. So really cool. Has he made a cameo yet? Um, has he? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I did kind of partly work through a couple episodes, so I missed a couple of bits. So it's possible. Ah, been there. Yeah, been there. Yeah, yeah. but Peacock, right. you know. Doing oh, that's thing. also Peacock. You're right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, two Peacock shows we recommended. Yeah. Good, good, good on you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, that's leadership for this week. Adriel, always a pleasure. Always. Can't wait till our next conversation. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com and find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. Be an inclusion work at adrielparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership.